A warning. This episode features brief discussions of homicide and suicide. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. If you or someone you know is experiencing suicidal thoughts, don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 800-273-8255. There is help. It's November 1934. At their bungalow in sunny Los Angeles, Christopher and Stella Roos receive a letter from their 20-year-old son, Everett. Everett's been exploring the Southwest for a few years now, on a solo odyssey. He encloses some of his most recent artwork, a couple newspaper clippings, and for the first time ever, money. He tells them it may be months before his next correspondence, because he plans to go deep into the wilderness, where he won't have access to a post office. The letter ends, so tomorrow I take the trail again, to the canyons south. Chris and Stella are used to this at this point. Their son often spends weeks or months outside of the bounds of civilization. But they don't know it'll be the last message they'll receive from Everett. And when that realization finally hits, it comes with another. Maybe they don't know their son. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing persons case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a young artist who trekked into the canyons of Utah and never returned. On his journey, he grappled with a question that has echoed across the Southwest ever since. Who is Everett Roos? Disappearances don't just happen to people, they happen to families. And for the Roos family, Everett's disappearance has impacted three generations and counting. I'll start at the beginning. It's February, 1935 and Everett Roos is on a 10-month-long journey across the American Southwest, completely alone, other than a rotating cast of burros to carry his supplies. And halfway across the world, Everett's brother Waldo is having an adventure of his own, working at a mission in China. Waldo takes after their father, Chris, who used to be a pastor, but now works as a business executive. Everett, on the other hand, takes after their mother, Stella, they're both artists and proud of it. They dabble in many different disciplines, but Everett particularly takes to poetry, painting, and linoleum block printing. Chris and Stella live in Los Angeles. Despite their son's distance, the Russes have always been close. Growing up, the boys routinely shared their personal diaries with Chris and Stella. Even as adults, Waldo and Everett still include the occasional excerpt in their letters home. And at 20 years old, Everett's not completely independent. His parents bankroll his adventures with monthly allowances. They send him care packages that contain everything from paint supplies to his favorite cereal, grape nuts. More than once, Chris and Stella have offered to drive out and pick him up when things seem tough. Everett always declines. He hasn't had his fill of adventure. But without fail, he always picks up the mail and he always writes back. Thanks, I'm not coming home yet. 
don't come get me. So when a remote outpost in Arizona returns a bundle of unopened mail after three months without hearing from Everett, they know something is very wrong. The Ruses immediately report their son missing. To authorities and local newspapers, Chris and Stella describe Everett as outgoing, likable, and always on the move, which is true. As a child, Stella had to tie Everett to the porch to keep him from wandering off. As he grew older, he turned his childhood bedroom into what he called a museum. He filled it with all of his archaeological finds and art from their family's travels. At only 16, he left on his first solo trip into the deserts of the Southwest. He'd send Chris and Stella paintings he'd made, vivid descriptions of the incredible vistas he'd seen, and more pieces for his museum, including a portrait of himself, snapped by his friend Dorothea Lang. If that name rings a bell, you've probably seen it in museums and history books. Dorothea's one of many impressive artists Everett's rubbed elbows with in his short life. Others include Maynard Dixon, Edward Weston, and Ansel Adams. On a quest to immortalize his own art, Everett spends a lot of time knocking on their front doors, seeking mentorship, and his bold gambit works. Decades later, Ansel Adams has one of Everett's block prints hanging on his bedroom wall. At 20, Everett isn't anywhere near the league of his mentors, but he's a published poet, and thanks to his willingness to hand deliver, his art can be found on sale in shops across America. He certainly endeared himself to Dorothea Lang. In later years, perhaps inspired by Everett, she'll also journey through the American Southwest. On her travels, she'll snap a photo called Migrant Mother, which will become the defining image of the Great Depression. But now, in 1935, Dorothea's portrait of Everett becomes a missing person photo. It shows a wide face, full lips, hooded eyes, light brown hair, and pale skin. In February 1935, Chris and Stella write out a similar description, hand-copying dozens of letters with the same sense of panic and the message, have you seen or heard of our son? They cast a wide net, mailing a copy to any small town Everett ever passed through. Escalante, Cayenta, Monument Valley, Castle Crags, Chinle, Saya, Marble Canyon, the Grand Canyon, Without any record of where he's been for the past three months, he could be anywhere. Then in mid-February, Chris and Stella receive their first lead. The postmistress from Escalante, Utah, the town where Everett postmarked his final letters home, responds, saying Everett was there in November. She hasn't seen him since. But the good news is, almost all of Escalante's residents remember Everett. It's a small town and Everett was a memorable guy. The last people to see him were two local shepherds. Here's what they remember. It's three months earlier, and they're camping with Everett along the Colorado River. They offer him food, but he turns it down, saying he has more than he needs. The young artist is more interested in information. He spends two days asking the shepherds about nearby ruins and scenery, presumably looking for sites to paint. He says he has no interest in crossing the Colorado River, so he decides to explore the nearby gulches, miles-long pathways carved by ancient rivers that run through the canyons. They have colorful layers of orange and purple sediment on all sides. 
the shepherds say goodbye to Everett on November 21st, about a week after he mails his final letter home. And given the date and location, Everett might have run into some trouble afterwards. That same week, a massive three-day snowstorm hit the area. The story gives the county commissioner a place to start. By the first week of March, he sends a search party to scour the ravines near Escalante. They call Everett's name. Soda Gulch comes up empty, Willow Gulch as well. But when the team reaches Davis Gulch, they find two grazing burrows. And there's no doubt, they belong to Everett. They're standing in a makeshift corral, penned in so they don't wander off. The abandoned pack animals aren't necessarily a bad sign. Everett had jettisoned burrows before. If he couldn't coax one to cross a river or climb a cliff, he'd leave it behind and buy another later. The search party finds halters and a few supplies as well, but they don't find Everett's camping kit, his journal, or Everett. But nearby, they find a set of size 9 boot prints, and they follow them, step by step, to the edge of a cliff. The prints seem to confirm everyone's worst fears. Everett slipped and fell into an icy ravine. But when the group peers over the cliff, there's no body and no footprints either. Further into the gulch, the team spots a message carved into the cliffside. Graffiti isn't uncommon for this area, but the words stand apart from the rest. It says November 1934, and above the date, in all caps, is one word. NEMO. The carving raises eyebrows. It's unlike any of the others around it. And then there's the date, November 1934, whenever it was last seen in the area. The men don't tell Chris and Stella about it yet. For all they know, NEMO is a Navajo word. No one wants to get their hopes up. After two weeks, the initial search ends. The county commissioner begins planning a second, larger search. He sends a telegraph to Chris and Stella, and the subtext of this message is clear. Everett's survival skills were good, but he was probably out of his depth. For some reason, he left most of what he needed to survive behind. He wouldn't have made it long on his own, if he was alone. By mid-March, the Ruses receive a letter from a man named Captain Neil Johnson. According to him, he's a former Mexican military man. He knows the area and the Navajo people well, and he believes Everett fell in love with a Navajo girl and ran away with her. Johnson offers to organize another search through Navajo lands for just $350 or roughly $7,000 today. He says it'll pay for feeding and outfitting Navajo scouts. Chris and Stella are skeptical of Johnson's theory. They don't discount the idea. Everett formed connections quickly, and from his letters, they know Everett befriended many Navajo people on his travels. But in their minds, their son would have told them if he'd fallen in love. Before Chris and Stella can respond, though, Captain Johnson shows up at their house in Los Angeles, and he tells them exactly what they want to hear. He's confident Everett's alive. He'll find him. Chris and Stella will be grandparents someday. His words offer a lot of hope when, so far, there hasn't been much. And by the end of his visit, Chris takes the risk. He hands Captain Johnson money, 
and Johnson treks off to the Navajo lands. By June, it's been five months since Everett was last seen, and even longer since the Ruses have heard from their son. But they receive a telegraph from the latest search party in Escalante, with two pieces of news. First, the team still hasn't found Everett, which is good. If Everett died nearby, they should have found his body in the ravines. So it's possible he's still out there, alive. And second, they found more boot prints and another carving, almost identical to the first. Nemo, 1934. Now they're wondering whether the word Nemo has any significance to Everett or his family. Reading it, Stella's heart swells. This is the first she's heard of the carvings. She knows her son. He hates writing his real name anywhere in public. It's one of his many personality quirks. And he loves Greek mythology. Nemo could be an allusion to Homer's The Odyssey. In this epic, Odysseus uses the alias Nemo to outwit a Cyclops. Nemo translates to no one. So when the Cyclops yells, Nemo is attacking me, the other monsters hear, no one is attacking me. They don't come help, and Odysseus's crew escapes. Maybe Everett is saying that he's no one? After giving it more thought, though, the carvings could also be a reference to another favorite book of Everett's, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. One of the book's most memorable characters is named Captain Nemo. He abandons all he knows and runs away from the world, piloting his submarine through the vast, unknown ocean. Captain Nemo doesn't want to be found. It's June 1935, and Everett Roos has been missing for eight months. The abiding theory is that he ran away into Navajo lands, and for some reason, cut off communication with his family. His adoring parents, Chris and Stella Roos, don't have any answers, just questions. What secrets was Everett keeping from them? Is he alive? And if he is, does he want to be found? At the end of June 1935, Chris and Stella embark on a two-week road trip through the Southwest. If not to find their son, to find his soul. They want to get a better sense of the person he was when they weren't around. They seek out anyone Everett mentioned in his letters, acquaintances and friends he met along his travels. They hike the canyons he loved, sit under the same trees that inspired his block prints. In Escalante, they meet the men who search the canyons for their son, plus two shepherds who last saw him alive. After talking to locals, the Ruses receive some bad news. Captain Neil Johnson, the man they paid to travel into Navajo lands to find their son, is a fraud. There was no third search, no Navajo scouts. Johnson took their money and ran. It's the first time a stranger leverages Everett's disappearance for personal gain but not the last. In anguish, Chris and Stella confront the facts. If there's a chance of finding Everett, they need to rely on the people who actually knew him. They need to talk to their other son, Waldo. Waldo was actually the last family member to see Everett. He's the one who dropped Everett off in the Arizona desert at the start of his trip, but he was in China when Everett went missing and has been there ever since. 
so Chris and Stella haven't really involved him much up until this point. But they find out, maybe they should have. Waldo and Everett also exchanged letters, and the letters Everett wrote Waldo provide an important window into Everett's mindset and identity. Now, before I go any further, we have to be careful how we interpret these private letters. Others have used them to claim Everett was queer, depressed, bipolar, or suicidal. But the truth is, all or none of these could be true. And without Everett to speak on his own behalf, we can't know anything for certain. That said, there's content in Everett's letters to Waldo that would upset any parent. I mean, imagine, you're reading letters clearly written by your son, and he's asking his brother to keep secrets from you. Like how his burrow once fell in a river, and he almost drowned. How he spent eight days hospitalized with poison oak. And how the name he uses to sign letters to his friends isn't the one you gave him. Three years before your son disappears, he writes, I shall go on some last wilderness trip, to a place I have known and loved. I shall not return. Two years before your son disappears, he writes, When the time comes to die, I'll find the wildest, loneliest, most desolate spot there is. One year before your son disappears, he writes, I don't expect you to understand my emotions more than anyone else, nor would it matter much if you did. The year your son disappears, he writes, I have been having valuable experiences here in San Francisco. I cherish them, for I know there will never be another period in my life like this. So much of his writing is spent reflecting on his identity. Your son clearly feels misunderstood, different. It seems like he ran into the woods to either find himself or to remove himself from the world from those he didn't think would or could accept him. And in his last known writing, your child calls himself no one. Suddenly, it seems like there were warning signs all along, and your only other son read them and didn't tell you. I understand why Chris and Stella suddenly feel like their son is a complete stranger. Shortly after reading the letters, Chris writes in his journal, I think we all poorly understood Everett. With their illusion of their tight-knit family shattered, Chris and Stella are forced to consider the darkest possibility, that Everett died by suicide. But Waldo refuses to believe it. As the recipient of the letters, he claims to know better. His brother's foolhardy, brooding, maybe a little reckless, but not depressed. He went to find his soul, not to end his life. Naturally, Chris and Stella want to believe that's true, so they consider every other possibility, no matter how outlandish. They pay every con artist and consult every psychic that comes their way. And when they finally come out on the other side, they choose to believe Everett's alive, out adventuring somewhere, until someone confesses to killing him. In 1941, nearly seven years after Everett was last seen, a Navajo man named Jack Crank brags about killing Everett Bruce. It's not the first time homicide is on the table. For years, a rumor's been spreading around Escalante. As the story goes, local cattle thieves mistook Everett for a government agent running a sting operation and killed him so they wouldn't get caught. Jack Crank is the first real suspect, though. 
His alleged motivations are embroiled in racist stereotypes, so I won't repeat them, especially because he never signs an official confession or faces charges. But in 1941, Jack is found guilty of killing a different white traveler and burying their body somewhere in the Utah desert. Honestly, there's not enough evidence to say whether Jack murdered Everett or not. For all I know, he could have. But I mention it because Chris Roos believes Jack Crank killed his son. In 1952, he writes a letter in which he says that Jack's confession, quote, solved the riddle for him. And as far as I know, he takes that belief to the grave when he dies two years later. As for the other members of the Roos family, they disagree. Waldo believes that the first and simplest explanation is correct. His daredevil brother died after a fall. His body has always been in a ditch, waiting to be found. Closure is just one phone call away. But even after so many years, Stella still chooses hope. According to Waldo, she believes the only reason her son hasn't come home yet is because he has amnesia. And yes, that sounds far-fetched, but it's not entirely impossible. Everett once said that after being stung by a swarm of bees, he temporarily lost his vision, vomited, and experienced chills in a burning sensation that lasted for hours. Those are all symptoms of anaphylactic shock, meaning Everett was likely allergic to bees. Another symptom of anaphylactic shock, amnesia. Seriously, it would be rare, but it's possible. And here's the kicker. Later in life, Waldo, Everett's closest genetic relative, nearly dies after a yellow jacket sting. According to Waldo's daughter, the experience triggers the onset of her father's dementia, but alive or dead, at a certain point, Stella and Waldo stop looking for Everett and turn their attention to preserving his legacy. After collecting letters, journals, essays, and art, Stella submits his story to various publishers and magazine editors. Everett's work gets published in a book titled On Desert Trails with Everett Roos. Stella establishes the Everett Roos Poetry Awards for students at Los Angeles High School. Venues start showcasing Everett's block prints. Their efforts create a whole new identity for Everett, the mysterious, missing luminary. They know Everett would approve. Eventually, a screenwriter named Larry Kellner approaches Stella and Waldo. Larry sees promise in Everett's story, a blockbuster movie, a best-selling book. Stella has always hoped her son would be the subject of a film, so it's music to her ears. Kellner asks for some of Everett's original letters and photographs, as well as his 1931 journal. He wants every piece of Everett he can get his hands on for research. He says he's interested in discovering who the real Everett Roos is, just like they are. So they give him most of what he asks for. But after years of correspondence, Larry stops writing back. Like Everett, he vanishes. Some 20 years later, in 1980, Waldo hears from a different writer, W.L. Bud Ruscio. At this point, Everett's well-known across the Southwest, and Ruscio's a passionate fan. He wants to anthologize a collection of Everett's letters, poetry, art, and journal entries. Now, Waldo thinks that this would be an amazing way to commemorate his brother, if not for the second missing person in Waldo's life, the thief Larry Kellner. 
He has dozens of Everett's original documents. Cautiously, Waldo provides the latest writer interested in his brother's story, Bud Ruscio, with copies of what he does have. Then he reaches out to Kellner again to see if he can get the materials he stole. To his surprise, Kellner responds. He tells Waldo that he doesn't have the original letters, journals, and photos. He never had them. Waldo never gave him anything. It's a disgusting lie, but it gets worse. Kellner offers to sell Waldo other documents that once belonged to Everett, which he claims were given to him by members of the Escalante search party. Desperate, Waldo makes a cash offer, and Kellner turns it down. He accuses Waldo of lowballing him. Even when the offer gets doubled, Kellner still tells Waldo no, it's not enough. Bud Ruscio ends up publishing the anthology incomplete. And Waldo later learns that Larry Kellner sold the documents to other people. See, Everett's now a cult hero of the American Southwest. People can buy his block prints on mugs and t-shirts. There's a musical, two Hollywood movies, and a ton of country ballads written about him. He's become such a romantic figure that a chapter of the book Into the Wild is dedicated to him. Escalante, Utah hosts an annual festival called Everett Roos Days. The Roos's work to preserve Everett's legacy has worked, but it comes at a cost. Everett's a legend now, and the public thinks they own him. By the 90s, people feel comfortable using Everett Roos's likeness however they see fit, which isn't uncommon for missing person cases that receive a lot of attention. In telling true crime stories, intrigue and mystery can often be valued over humanity and facts. People lose sight of the real person, the real tragedy, the real family. And in some cases, complete strangers actually believe they know the victim best. To be clear, they don't. But I wonder if Waldo Roos ever believed them. Every account adds new layers to Everett's legend. With so many unknowns, I'm sure it'd be pretty easy for him to question his relationship with his brother. His memories, his reality. He's already had to convince his parents that his brother wanted to live. I can only imagine what it would be like to hold on to his convictions, to believe that he knew his brother, maybe better than anyone. But Waldo doesn't give up on closure. Whenever bones or artifacts are found that even remotely match Everett's description, he gets a call, and he always picks up. But it's never Everett. Waldo's four kids grow up with an uncle who's really just a string of myths. The white man who ran away with the Navajo sweetheart. The traveler murdered on the prairie. The wanderer who chose nature over civilization. Odysseus. Captain Nemo, no one. To them, he's campfire smoke. When Waldo passes away in 2007, this new generation inherits the search for the real Everett Roos. One year later, 74 years after their uncle's disappearance, they receive a phone call that completely upends their lives. Waldo's son, Brian, picks up. It's National Geographic writer David Roberts with news for Brian. 
David recently came across a story about another family's tragedy that has been passed down through generations. And after hearing it, he says he thinks Everett Roos's body has been found. The story starts back in the 1930s with a Navajo shepherd named Aneth Nez. Aneth is surveying land from atop a cliff called Comb Ridge when he spots something odd, a white man on the reservation. The man's young, with two burrows. And for whatever reason, he's camping near the bottom of the ravine. Aneth doesn't pay too much mind, until the next time he sees him. The white man is now speeding along the wash below on a pack burrow, which Aneth realizes is because two men on horseback are chasing him down. They're members of the Ute tribe, the Navajo's rivals. The man calls out for help, but before Aneth can act, the Ute men catch up to him. They accost him, steal everything he has, including the burrows, and leave him splayed on the ground below, bleeding. By the time Aneth clambers down from his vantage point, the man's dead. Aneth buries him in a rock crevice on Comb Ridge, out of respect, despite the fact that doing so means he comes in contact with the stranger's blood. In Navajo culture, it's bad luck to touch dead bodies, and worse luck to touch their blood. Shame likely keeps him from telling anyone except family. But in 2008, the family legend reaches Anna's adult grandson, Denny, who decides to see if he can find the body. And he does. He locates decades-old bones stuffed into a crevice, right where his grandfather said they would be. When Denny later tells his friends about it, one of them brings up a name he's never heard before, Everett Roos. Before long, they're calling David Roberts at National Geographic, and David calls Brian Roos. After 75 years of searching, it's everything the Roos family wants to hear. David says the Navajo Nation's archaeologist has already given the go-ahead to run tests to see if the bones are Everett. So Brian and all three of his siblings submit their DNA. And wait. In the meantime, the investigation goes to an anthropologist, who reconstructs the skull alongside Dorothea Lang's portraits of Everett. It's a match. Then the DNA comes back, also a match. All four of Waldo's children have 25% of the same genes as the skeleton, the exact percentage expected to be shared by an uncle and his nieces and nephews. In April 2009, National Geographic releases the findings. Everett Roos is found. The mystery is solved. The article is a hit for National Geographic. David Roberts gets a book deal. And the Ruses get something too this time. A semblance of closure. They travel to Comb Ridge, have a memorial service for Everett, and start making arrangements to scatter his ashes off the Pacific coast. A family tradition. Everything's wrapped up neatly. And then it all falls apart. Again, at this point, so many bystanders have taken a personal interest in Everett Roos and how he disappeared. So as the story goes viral, people start to challenge the lab results. And not just internet trolls. The Utah State Archaeologist publishes a scathing report claiming the skeleton at Comb Ridge can't be Everett Roos. They examined photos of the jawbone, and they don't match Everett's dental records. The Ruses want the archaeologist to be wrong, 
but they can't justify cremating the remains yet if there's any doubt. So they contact the Armed Forces DNA Identification Laboratory. The organization specializes in uncovering the identities of unknown soldiers. And after running tests, they determine that the bones most likely belong to a Native American. The initial DNA testing apparently used a new form of technology. When there isn't enough DNA, it produces a false positive. In late 2009, the family returns the bones to the Navajo people, who hold a traditional burial to honor the deceased. The ceremony is held on the same lands where it's believed Everett Roos disappeared. To this day, the grave remains unmarked, unless you count the Nemo carved into the cliffside nearby. And just like that, the Rooses are back at square one, no further along than they were in 1934, when a young man entered the wild to answer a simple question. Who is Everett Roos? You could say it's been almost eight decades of not knowing, but personally, I'd say he was a son and a brother, a lost soul who felt misunderstood, but was deeply loved. Beyond that, we'll likely never know. As the Roos family has learned over three generations and counting, when you go searching for no one, you can find absolutely anything. Next time. After 23-year-old Phoenix Colden goes missing in 2011, her parents find details that she kept hidden from them, like a boyfriend, a phone, and a knife. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Disappearances was written by Maggie and Meyer, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. 